Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, December 3rd, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we're going to get right into this. We're going to present part 19 of our series on the Protocols of Satan. This segment is subtitled, Protocol Number 2, Jewish Agents in Post-Protocols American Government, with the intent on showing how the protocols were indeed executed, how the plan laid forth by the protocols were indeed executed just a short time later, just a short time after the protocols first appeared. In our last presentation of the Protocols of Satan, we began a discussion of Protocol Number 2, which is subtitled Economic Wars. Doing this, we presented an entire chapter from the International Jew, which was in turn subtitled The Economic Plans of International Jews. The opening lines of this protocol boasted that wars would be shifted to an economic basis, and they most certainly were. However, that alone did not negate the need for military war, since Jewry would by necessity have to manipulate into such a war any nation which it did not fully control. So 16 years after the protocols were first known by Christians to have existed, Europe is plunged into the first great war. No matter the pretenses used to ignite the conflagration, we must understand that its causes were indeed economic. Adolf Hitler understood this, and he wrote the following in Volume 10, I'm sorry, Volume 1, Chapter 10 of Mein Kampf. Over against the innumerable drawbacks which I have mentioned here, and which afflict, affected German life before the war, there were many outstanding features on the positive side. If we take an impartial survey, we must admit that most of our drawbacks were in great measure prevalent also in other countries and among the other nations, and very often in a worse form than with us. Whereas among us, there were many real advantages which the others did not have. The leading phase of Germany's superiority arose from the fact that almost alone among all the other European nations, the German nation had made the strongest effort to preserve the national character of its economic structure, and for this reason was less subject than other countries to the power of international finance, though indeed there were many untoward symptoms in this regard also. And yet, this superiority was a perilous one, and turned out later to be one of the chief causes of the World War. The First World War was fought to assure Jewish dominance, and specifically Rothschild dominance, over the economies of Europe. The United States had voluntarily ceded control of its own economy to the Jewish-controlled banks in 1913. As we had explained from the pages of A. Ralph Epperson's The Unseen Hand in our previous presentation in this series, as soon as the banks gained that control, they began using it to loot and pillage the entire nation through currency manipulation through which all Americans are enslaved today. 
It is common knowledge, even in rather mainstream historical sources, that presumably American banks invested billions of dollars in the Allied side of the war. J.P. Morgan alone is said to have invested up to $3 billion in the outcome of the First World War by loaning such sums to the British and French governments specifically for the war effort. This is a tremendous amount, as according to the numbers which we reproduced from Mr. Epperson, $3 billion would be equivalent to nearly 10% of all of the money in circulation in the United States at that time. And Morgan was not the only bank to make such investments. These sums would only be available through the miracle of fractional reserve banking, through which the Jews have conquered the world by the ability to loan out and collect interest on much more money which ever existed. They collected interest on much more money that never existed. Furthermore, these loans are equivalent to private banks hiring foreign governments for the conquest of another nation. Once the money was invested, those same banks began a propaganda campaign, including all the usual accusations of atrocities, to get America involved militarily and therefore ensure the success of their investment, an investment which was really only worth the paper it was written on. The banks then began propaganda campaigns on American shores to exploit the war even further. Labels such as Liberty Bonds sound patriotic, but were really designed to further the profits of the banks, and in order to coax the average American into supporting the war effort even more fervently. Americans who bought such bonds only advanced their own enslavement to the Jews. At the same time, that Germany and Austria were being conquered by the Rothschild banks. Russia had been maneuvered into the war on the side of the British and French. This enabled the banks to exploit the Germans against the Russians and left Russia exposed to revolution from within, which those same banks also financed. Russia did not have a central bank before the war, so it too had been a necessary target of the Jewish plans for world conquest. While it is not our purpose here to give a detailed history of the Jewish takeover of Russia, and we've already done that several years ago, we will present a passage from Michael Raphael Johnson's The Third Rome, Holy Russia, Tsarism, and Orthodoxy, which makes a neat summary of our assertions in the ultimate consequences from pages 224 and 225 he writes contrary to mythology Russia was not dealing with an equipment shortage relative to Germany or France by late 1916 Neal Ferguson in his famed The Pity of War makes it very clear that modern research has determined that the shortages and crises facing the Russians were universal in World War I. And indeed, Russian mobilization was superior to the German in the early years of the war. Of course, Germany was fighting a war on two fronts. As usual, 
Johnson writes, The English-language historical literature on Russia Russia merely rehashes 90-year-old Bolshevik propaganda and calls it history. All through this time, however, the German high command, as dealt with earlier, was attempting to undermine the Russian war effort by bankrolling the revolutionary movement. And of course, in doing that, Germany was only defending itself. Russia was winning against Germany and had defeated Austria. Thus, not only were the Bolshevik murderers and liars being funded from New York and Washington, D.C., but were subsidized by Berlin as well. As the war went on, it is safe to say that the Bolsheviks had a better equipped propaganda division than the Tsar or the Kaiser. It should be noted that propaganda was developed as purely a tool of the left. Traditional monarchs did not need such crudity and had only a dim grasp of its importance. The Russian army disintegrated as the Tsar was overthrown in February of 1917. The Bolsheviks, keeping their deal with the Germans, signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk with Germany in that same year. The Russian forces of the Tsar became the White Armies and fought the better-funded Bolshevik and revolutionary forces until the latter's final victory later in the year. British and American forces attempted to keep Russia at the front through their landing in northern Russia during the Civil War, but to no avail. Bankers are more powerful than governments. Lenin had won and kept his other promise to the Schiff family by nationalizing Russia's banks. Lenin also left the Russian branch of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York untouched, the final proof of the Western bankrolling of the revolution. Russia's losses in a war numbered 2.5 million dead or missing, amounting to nearly 50% of the Allied total losses for the entire war. Unsurprisingly, as the revolution was progressing, the Duma, that vile agent for revolution, did nothing. The violently factionalized so-called parties could, of course, agree on no common action, and the Duma called a quote-unquote provisional committee, later perverted into the mouthpiece of the Masonic Kerensky government. The Bolsheviks, both well-funded and well-armed, as well as under a centralized command, ultimately triumphed. The white armies were too spread out and too disorganized. The red forces were connected by a common ideology, which makes for a far more formidable fighting force than mere numbers. The white forces included monarchists, conservatives, liberals, cadets, and Mensheviks. Not only were they fragmented, they were utterly at loggerheads. And a little further on, on pages 226 and 227 of his book, Johnson writes, Spurned by the ever-sleazy British ruling classes, which we see all around us today, who were petitioned to take Nicholas and the royal family as refugees, after the massive outpouring of Russian blood for the Allied cause, the royal family, including the children, were murdered on July 4, 1918. That's not quite accurate. It's close. Masonic symbols and slogans were scrawled upon the walls in the blood of the Tsar Mater. Pictures still exist of the occult esoteria, and I think he meant to print esoterica.
But just to add one more insult to the royal family, Geoffrey Hosking, in his Russia and the Russians, now the standard work in Russian history and English, refuses to mention the murders at all. Not a word. And of course, we should not be surprised by this, since throughout the series we have endeavored to elucidate both the fundamental and intricate connections between Jewry and the tools which it has used to subvert Christendom, which include occultism, Kabbalah, masonry, Bolshevism, and capitalism. And while what little we have presented in summary here is already quite well known among many honest historians, the revisionist historians, although they are not found among the offerings from the major publishers, we are compelled to mention it in in relation to the economic wars which have taken place since this proclamation that is found in Protocol No. 2. We should also not be surprised that such a criminal act as the murder of the family of the Tsar, which was without doubt conducted by Bolshevik Jews, is not even mentioned in one of these supposedly authoritative histories of Russia. The publishers of historical books are merely an extension of the Jewish-controlled media. Accounts of these murders were published albeit very briefly and in an incomplete form, in the suppressed Russia Number 1 reports on the Bolshevik Revolution compiled by the British government. And we have those available in full at the Mein Kampf project at Christiania. In one minor aspect, Michael Raphael Johnson is incorrect, since according to the independent eyewitnesses, the Tsar and his family seem to have survived until the 16th of July of 1918. As a digression, we must say that the Kaiser's Germany is often blamed for the success of the Bolshevik Revolution. And while that is partially true, those who place such blame also ignore the difficult position that Germany was in on the Russian front. As Johnson rather adeptly describes it, Russia was succeeding in the war against Austria and Germany, and that put the Germans in a difficult position. Forced into fighting a two-front war, we cannot blame the Germans for wanting to avoid the possibility of defeat. The Germans were basically forced to take advantage of whatever means they could to keep themselves from doom, and the Bolshevik Jews happened to be opportunists. Adolf Hitler understood the economic war by which the Jews endeavored to control the entire world, and mentioned it often in Mein Kampf and in his public speeches. But he had many others of his fellow Germans for company. In 1937, Caius Fabricius wrote in Positive Christianity in the Third Reich that our attacks are directed against the present-day Judaism, the ally of the powers of destruction, which in all secrecy, through the agency of banks, bourses, meaning stock markets, and press, seeks to rule the world. Speaking of Weimar-era Germany and the collaboration of organized Marxism with the Jewish capitalists, Hitler said in Volume 1, Chapter 12 of Mein Kampf, that the Marxist leaders 
whose business consisted in deceiving and misleading the public, naturally hated most of all a movement whose declared aim was to win over the masses which hitherto had been exclusively at the service of international Marxism in the Jewish and stock exchange parties. The capitalists and the Marxists were working hand in hand to conquer the nations. Hitler also understood that the nation lost its sovereignty through the mechanisms of international capital on the stock exchanges, just like America had no say when all of the international corporations moved all of their factories to China. It's a loss of national sovereignty. Hitler became cognizant of this in 1919 after hearing the lectures of the German economist Gottfried Feder, and thus he wrote in Volume 1, Chapter 8 of Mein Kampf. When I heard Gottfried Feder's first lecture on the abolition of the interest servitude, I understood immediately that here was a truth of transcendental importance for the future of the German people. The absolute separation of stock exchange capital from the economic life of the nation would make it possible to oppose the process of internationalization in German business without at the same time attacking capital as such, for to do this would jeopardize the foundations of our national independence. So Adolf Hitler respected property rights, but did not respect international capitalism because he understood that it eroded the national sovereignty. He goes on to say, I clearly saw what was developing in Germany and I realized then that the stiffest fight we would have to wage would not be against the enemy nations, but against international capital. The bankers, as Michael Raphael Johnson put it, are more powerful than governments. Hitler says in Fetter's speech I found an effective rallying cry for our coming struggle. Here again later events proved how correct was the impression we had then. The fools among our bourgeois politicians do not mock at us on this point anymore. For even those politicians now see, if they would speak the truth, that international stock exchange capital was not only the chief instigating factor in bringing on the war, meaning the First World War, but that now when the war is over, it turns the peace into a hell. The struggle against international finance capital and loan capital has become one of the most important points in the program on which the German nation has based its fight for economic freedom and independence. So, Adolf Hitler believed that the economic agenda of the Jewish-controlled international banks caused the First World War, and it is clear that Hitler's freeing Germany from control of those banks precipitated the Second World War, because Jewry would not give up the control it has gained without a fight. While this second portion of the protocols is titled Economic Wars. It also spells out some of the plans for maintaining world control that transcend merely economic matters, and some of those other matters shall be shall also be discussed here. 
Therefore, we shall proceed with our presentation of these so-called Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zeon, as they are found in the book The Protocols and World Revolution, attributed to Boris Brassall, and published in Boston in 1920 by Maynard Small and Company. And we'll be taking this in a few little chunks this evening with some large digressions. Protocol number two continued. The administrators chosen by us from among the people in accordance with their capacity for servility will not be experienced in the art of government. And consequently, they will easily become pawns in our game in the hands of our scientists and wise counselors, specialists trained from early childhood for governing the world. Not the administrators, but the Jewish scientists and counselors. As you are aware, these specialists have obtained the knowledge necessary for government from our political plans, from the study of history, and from the observation of every passing event. By scientists and wise counselors, specialists trained from early childhood for governing the world, the authors of the protocols mean to refer to Jewish advisors and so-called experts who would not actually hold office, but who would guide those of the goyim whom the Jews choose to hold office. The goyim office holders would be chosen in accordance with their capacity for servility and will not be experienced in the art of government. If you want anything that explains the total ineptitude of American politicians these last 100 years, this is it. If you want anything that explains how idiots like John McCain can achieve an office in the U.S. Senate and keep it for 40 years, this is it. How buffoons like Bill Clinton can become president or that this Barack Obama total buffoons like Barack Obama he's a clown he's like a negro clown in in a monkey suit that's exactly what he is how he could become president this is it the protocols are real Woodrow Wilson was one such servile dupe for Jewry during his administration, the graduated income tax, the central bank and women's suffrage, which are all objectives of these recently published protocols, recently published at that time, had all become a reality. Fifteen years after that conference in Switzerland where the protocols are believed to have first been announced. And further advancing the cause of international Jewry at that time with the American entry into the First World War and Prohibition, which ultimately turned the American liquor and beer industries over to predominantly Jewish control. Throughout his eight years in office, aside from other advances that the Jews made, such as advances in, in the um, promoting the pharmaceutical industry and, and several other platforms and agendas that they had. I only tried to hit on the major things. Throughout his eight years in office, Wilson was closely advised by the so-called Colonel Edward Mandel House. Colonel. House was never even an army officer. 
he only obtained the title from a man whom he helped to get elected as governor of Texas when House was in turn appointed to his staff. So the title isn't real, and it's ludicrous that the title was even recognized, at least outside of the governor's office in Texas. House's father, who had come from England to Texas by way of New Orleans, was a blockade runner for the Rothschilds during the American Civil War. According to one biographer, author Howden Smith, in his book The Real Colonel House, when House's father died in 1880, his estate was distributed among his sons as follows. Thomas William got the banking business, John the sugar plantation, and Edward Mandel House the cotton plantations, which brought him an income of $20,000 a year. So he comes to America as a blockade runner for the Rothschilds, and within 20 years he has cotton plantations, plural, a sugar plantation, and a banking business. Pretty lucrative business running blockades for the Rothschilds. Eventually, House sold his share of his father's ill-gotten businesses to go into banking for himself. While it cannot be established that House was actually a Jew, he had written a book called Philip Drew, Administrator, which betrays his favor for totalitarian Marxist forms of government. Evidently, he made his political fame helping four different Texas governors get elected before moving on to higher ground. The connection between Edward Mandel House the banking business, and the Rothschilds should not go unnoticed. And it cannot be coincidental that he was in place to guide Woodrow Wilson for all eight years of his presidency. However, in my own estimation, one of Wilson's crimes was offering the Germans peace based upon his lauded 14 points and then abandoning Germany to the voracious whims of the British and French after Germany accepted peace on Wilson's terms. House was behind that treachery as well. Once Germany voluntarily disarmed, it could not prevent the internal treachery, which led to the German capitulation and enslavement at Versailles. Because it helps to attest to the Jewish desire to control the world's governments, as boasted in the Protocols, and also because it is pertinent to our discussion of Edward Mandel House, Wilson, and Versailles, here we will present a part of a chapter from The International Jew by Henry Ford and the Dearborn Independent. From our first segments of these presentations of the Protocols, our listeners may remember the name of Louis Marshall. This Jew, Louis Marshall, had exerted a great personal effort to discredit the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion as forgeries when they were first published in the United States. So here is the first two-thirds, perhaps, of a chapter entitled America's Jewish Enigma, Louis Marshall. This was published in the Dearborn Independent in 1921, I believe. Something of an enigma is Louis Marshall, whose name heads the list of organized Jewry in America, and who is known as the arch-protester against most things non-Jewish. 
He is head of nearly every Jewish movement that amounts to anything. And he is chief opponent of practically every non-Jewish movement that promises to amount to something. Yet he is known mostly as a name, and not a very Jewish name at that. And we will contest this in a little bit. Ford goes on to say that it would be interesting to know how the name of Marshall found its way to this Jewish gentleman. It is not a common name, even among Jews who change their names. Louis Marshall is the only Marshall listed in a Jewish encyclopedia, and the only Jewish Marshall in the index of the publications of the American Jewish Historical Society. In the list of the annual contributors to the American Jewish Committee are found such names as Marschutz, Meyer, Massal, Merrimort, Monheimer, Marx, Morse, Mackler, Marcus, Morris, Moskowitz, Marx, Mogulis, Marek, but only one Marshall, and that is Lewis. Of any other prominent Jew it may be asked, which Strauss, which Untermeyer, which Kahn, which Schiff, but never which Marshall, for there is only one. We're going to illustrate the fact that it's probably for good reason there is only one real soon. <laughs> Ford says he's not the head of Jewry, but he certainly, his name certainly indicates that. Ford says this in itself would indicate that Marshall is not a Jewish name. It is an American or an Anglo-Saxon name transplanted into a Jewish family. But how and why are questions to which the public as yet have no answer. And here we must interject that Mr. Ford would have been quite surprised to learn of the Hebrew word marshal. Mashal. I'm sorry, it doesn't have an R. Mashal. Strong's number 4910. And very likely, Mashal is the ultimate root of the Latin word marialis and the English word marshal. In Hebrew, it means to rule a name which is fittingly adopted by a usurping Jew like Louis Marshall. Perhaps he was the head of world Jewry, as even Ford is about to illustrate, even though Ford denies that. Continuing with Ford, Louis Marshall is the head of the American Jewish Committee, and the American Jewish Committee is the head of all official Jewish activity in the United States. No wonder why his name's Marshall. As head of the committee, he is also head of the Executive Committee of the New York Kahila, an organization which is the active front of organized Jewry in New York and the center of Jewish propaganda for the United States. And of course, at this time, and we could document this, there were over one and a quarter million Jews in New York as early as 1918, I think as early as 1914. The nominal head of the Kahila is Rabbi Judah Magnus, a brother-in-law of Louis Marshall. Not only are the American Jewish Committee and the Kahila linked officially, but they are linked domestically as well. And Ford references us to a different chapter in the International Jew. Louis Marshall was president of all the Jewish committees of the world at the Versailles Peace Conference, and it is charged now, as it has been charged before, that the Jewish program is the only program that went through the Versailles 
the Versailles Conference as it was drawn. And the so-called League of Nations is busily carrying out its terms today, three years after the war ended. A determined effort is being made by Jews to have the Washington Conference take up the same matter. Colonel House was Louis Marshall's chief aide at Paris, enforcing the Jewish program on an unwilling world. We have already discussed the connections of Colonel House to the Rothschilds through the business of his father. While the connection may be considered remote, that is all the more to the benefit and advantage of the Jewish bankers. And Ford continues, Louis Marshall has appeared in all the great Jewish cases. The impeachment of Governor Sulzer, and that's a reference to the impeachment of New York Governor William Sulzer after a political feud at the Jewish-controlled Tammany Hall. The impeachment of Governor Sulzer was a piece of Jewish revenge, but Louis Marshall was Sulzer's attorney, probably the worst move that Sulzer made. Sulzer was removed from the office of governor. The case of Leo Frank, a Jew charged with the peculiarly vicious murder of a Georgia factory girl, was defended by Mr. Marshall. It was one of those cases where the whole world is whipped into excitement because a Jew is in trouble. It is almost an indication of the racial character of a culprit these days to note how much money is spent for him and how much fuss is raised concerning him. It seems to be a part of Jewish loyalty to prevent, if possible, the Gentile law being enforced against Jews. And we've seen that many times in history. The Dreyfus case, which happened in Kiev in Ukraine, it was a ritual murder case. The Dreyfus case and the Frank case are examples of the endless publicity the Jews secure in behalf of their own people. And, and of course, it's all free because Jews own the newspapers. Frank was reprieved from the death sentence and sent to prison, after which he was killed. That horrible act can be traced directly to the state of public opinion, which was caused by Rosh's Jewish publicity, which stopped at nothing to attain its ends. To this day, the state of Georgia is, in the average mind, part of an association of ideas directly traceable to this Jewish propaganda. Jewish publicity did to Georgia what it did to Russia, grossly misrepresented it, and so ceaselessly as to create a false impression generally. It is not without reason that the Ku Klux Klan was revived in Georgia and that Jews were excluded from membership. It probably would have been easier to hang them if they admitted them as members. Louis Marshall is chairman of the board and of the executive committee of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America, whose principal theologian, Mordecai Kaplan, is the leading exponent of an educational plan by which Judaism can be made to supersede Christianity in the United States. And, of course, we've seen under Barack Obama that they put up a menorah on the White House lawn in December instead of a Christmas tree now. Under cover of synagogal activities, which he knows that the well-known tolerance of the American people will never suspect, Rabbi Kaplan has thought out and systemized, or systematized, and launched a program to that end, certainly not without approval of Mr. Marshall. 
Louis Marshall is not the world leader of Jewry, but he is well advanced in Jewry's world council, as is seen by the fact that international Jewry reports to him, and also by the fact that he headed the Jews at the Kosher Conference, as the Versailles assemblage was known among those on the inside. Strange things happened in Paris. Mr. Marshall and, quote-unquote, Colonel House had affairs very well in hand between them. President Wilson sent a delegation to Syria to find out just what the contention of the Syrians was against the Jews. But that report has never seen the light of day. But it was the easiest thing imaginable to keep the President informed as to what the Jews of New York thought that is, the few who had not taken up their residence in Paris. For example, this prominent dispatch in the New York Times of May 27, 1919, says that Wilson gets full report of Jewish protest here. Louis Marshall, dated for Paris May 26, 1919. Louis Marshall, who has succeeded Judge Mack as the head of the Jewish Committee in Paris, was received by President Wilson this afternoon and gave him a long cabled account of the Jewish mass meeting recently held in Madison Square Garden, including the full text of the resolutions adopted at the meeting, and editorial comment in the Times and other papers. Ford says, When Russia fell, Louis Marshall held it with delight. The New York Times begins its story on March 19, 1917. Hailing the Russian upheaval as the greatest world event since the French Revolution, Louis Marshall said in an interview for the New York Times last night, a number of things among which was the statement that the events in Russia were no surprise. Of course they were not, the events being of Jewish origin and Mr. Marshall being the recipient of the most intimate international news. And I believe that 19... 17 in the original text is probably an error from 1919. It may have been an OCR error as a error as I prepared this presentation. So the New York Times openly published international Jewry's foreknowledge and therefore planning of the Bolshevik Revolution. That is a hostile and admission of a hostile invasion launched from American territory. It's saying the same thing. It's not a revolution. It's an admission of a hostile invasion which was launched from American territory. When Aaron Burr tried to do that in territory which did not belong to the United States, in the American Southwest, Thomas Jefferson had him arrested for treason and indicted, although he was later acquitted because of a lack of proof. There is no lack of proof in the case of Russia and the Jews. Continuing with Ford, even a new Russian revolutionary government made reports to Louis Marshall, as is shown by the dispatch printed in the New York Times of April 3, 1917, in which Baron Gunsberg reports what had been done to assure to the Jews the full advantage of the Russian upheaval. Imagine that. This glorification, and that's probably also a mistake for 
1919. I apologize for that. This glorification of the Jewish overthrow of Russia, it must be remembered, occurred before the world knew what Bolshevism was, and before it realized that the revolution meant the withdrawal of the whole Eastern Front from the war. Russia was simply taken out of the war, and the Central Powers left free to devote their whole attention to the Western Front. One of the resulting necessities was the immediate entrance of Russia into the conflict and the prolongation of hostilities for nearly two more years. And perhaps if these are talking about the interim government, then the dates are 1917. That's a possibility. I'll have to check it out. As the truth became known, Louis Marshall first defended, then explained, then denied his latest position being that the Jews are against Bolshevism. He was brought to this position by the necessity of meeting the testimony of eyewitnesses as given to congressional investigation committees. And there were, there's a report of congressional investigation committees. There's a report of the United States, an official report filed to Henry Cabot Lodge and the Foreign Relations Committees in the House and Senate at the Mein Kampf site at Christagenia. It's not online anywhere else, or at least it wasn't online anywhere else when we posted it several years ago. And it's the official government report on the Bolshevik Revolution, which is the memorandum on certain aspects of the Bolshevist movement in Russia, a U.S. government report from 1919. So that report was indeed printed in 1919. Marshall was brought to this position by the necessity of meeting the testimony of eyewitnesses as given to congressional investigation committees. This testimony came from responsible men whom even Mr. Marshall could not dispose of with a wave of his hand. So this Jew, Louis Marshall, was covering for the Jews that perpetrated the Bolshevik Revolution, and when he was confronted with the information, he had to concede. And as time has gone on, the testimony has increased to mountainous proportions that Bolshevism is Jewish in its origin. Now this is two years later in 1921. Its method, its personnel, and its purpose. Herman Bernstein, a member of Mr. Marshall's American Jewish Committee, has lately been preparing American public opinion for a great anti-Semitic movement in Russia. Certainly, it will be an anti-Semitic movement because it will be anti-Bolshevist and the Russian people, having lived with the hybrid for five years, are not mistaken as to its identity. And sadly, the Bolsheviks were able to starve the Russian and Ukrainian people to death, tens of millions of them, so it never happened. During the war, Mr. Marshall was the arch-protester, while Mr. Baruch was running the war from the business end. There's a quote here from Baruch. I had probably more power than perhaps any other man did in the war. Doubtless that is true. A reference to Bernard Baruch. Mr. Marshall was running another side. We find him protesting because an army officer gave him instructions as to his duties as a registration official. 
It was Mr. Marshall who complained to the Secretary of War that a certain camp contractor, after trying out carpenters, had advertised for Christian carpenters only. It was to the discrimination in print that Mr. Marshall chiefly objected. It may be surmised, since it is the policy of his committee to make it impossible, or at least unhealthy, to use print to call attention to the Jew. It was Mr. Marshall who compelled a change in the instruction sent out by the Provost Marshal General of the United States Army, to the effect that the foreign-born, especially Jews, are more apt to malinger than the native-born. It is said that a Jewish medical officer afterward confirmed this part of the instruction, saying that experience proved it. Nevertheless, President Wilson ordered that the paragraph be cut out. It was Mr. Marshall who compelled the revision of the Plattsburgh Officer's Training Manual. That valuable book rightly said that the ideal officer is a Christian gentleman. Mr. Marshall wrote, wired, demanded that the edition was changed. It now reads that the ideal officer is a courteous gentleman, a big drop in idealism. There was nothing too unimportant to draw forth Mr. Marshall's protest. To take care of protests alone, he must have a large organization. And yet, with all this high-tension pro-Jewish activity, Mr. Marshall is not a self-advertising man, as, his, as is his law partner, Samuel Untermeyer, who has been referred to as the arch-inquisitor against the Gentiles. Marshall is a name, a power, not so much a public figure. As an informed Jew said about the two men, no, Marshall doesn't advertise himself like Sam, meaning Untermeyer, and he has never tried to feature himself in the newspapers for personal reasons. Outside of his professional life, he devotes himself exclusively to religious affairs. That is the way the American Jew likes to describe the activities referred to above. Religious affairs. We shall soon see that they are political affairs. Mr. Marshall is short, stocky, and aggressive. Like his brother-in-law, Rabbi Magnus, he works on the principle that the Jew can do no wrong. For many years, Mr. Marshall had lived in a four-story brownstone house of the old-fashioned type with a grilled door in the East in East 72nd Street. This is an old-time swell neighborhood, once almost wholly occupied by wealthy Jews. It was as close as they could crowd to the choice Fifth Avenue corners, which had been preempted by the Vanderbilts, the Astors, and other rich families. That Mr. Marshall regards the whole Jewish program in which he is engaged, not in its religious aspect alone, but in its worldwide political aspect, may be judged from his attitude on Zionism. Mr. Marshall wrote in 1918 as follows, I have never been identified and, and am not now in any way connected with the Zionist organization. I have never favored the creation of a sovereign Jewish state. But, and Ford puts the but in all capital letters, Mr. Marshall says, let the Zionists go on. Don't interfere with them. Why, he writes, Zionism is but an incident of a far-reaching plan. It is merely a convenient peg on which to hang a powerful weapon.
All the protests that non-Zionists may make would be futile to affect that policy. He says that opposition to Zionism at that time would be dangerous. I could give concrete examples of a most impressive nature in support of what I have said. I am not an alarmist, and even my enemies will give me credit for not being a coward. But my love for our people, meaning the Jews, is such that even if I were disposed to combat Zionism, I would shrink from the responsibilities that might be entailed were I to do so. And in concluding this strange pronouncement, he says, Give me the credit of believing that I am speaking advisedly. Of course, there is more to Zionism than appears on the surface. But this is as close as anyone can come to finding a Jewish admission on the subject. And of course, the objective of Freemasonry is to see that a new temple is built in Jerusalem. I won't call it the third temple, because it'll really be the fourth temple. But their objective is to see that a new temple is built in Jerusalem, so that the Jews can rule the world from Jerusalem, believing that they have that license from God. Of course, Yahweh has a different plan for the Jews. They will be destroyed. I can't wait till they build that temple. Ford goes on to discuss Marshall and to say, if in this country there is apprehension over the Jewish problem, the activities of Louis Marshall have been the most powerful agents to evoke it. His propagandas have occasioned great resentment in many sections of the United States. His opposition to salutary immigration laws, his dictation to book and periodical publishers, as is the recent case of G.P. Putnam's sons, who modified their publishing program on his order, his campaign against the use of Christological expressions by federal, state, and municipal officers all have resulted in alarming the native population and harming the very cause he so indiscreetly advocates. That this defender of Jewish rights and restless advocate of the Jewish religious propaganda should make himself the leader in attacking the religion of the dominant race in this country, in ridiculing Sunday laws and heading an anti-Christian Christianity campaign, seems, to say the least, inconsistent. And of course, Ford doesn't really understand the differences between Judaism and Christianity and why the Jews act like they do. Mr. Marshall, who is regarded by the Jews as their greatest, quote-unquote, constitutional lawyer, since the decline of Edward Lauderback, and he has the expression, and that is a tale, in parentheses, since the decline of Edward Lauderback originated, in a series of legal documents, the contention that this is not a Christian country nor a Christian government. And, of course, Ford insists that it is. And, of course, it was. Was. This argument has expounded in many writings. He has built up a large host of followers among contentious Jews, who have elaborated on his theme in a variety of ways. It is one of the main arguments of those who are endeavoring to build up a united Israel in the United States. Mr. Marshall maintains that the opening of deliberative assemblies and conventions with prayer is a hollow mockery. He ridicules the absurd absurd phrase, in the name of God, Amen, as used in the beginning of wills. 
He opposes Sunday observance legislation as being the cloak of hypocrisy. He advocates crushing out every agitation which tends to introduce into the body politic the virus of religious controversy. In other words, you can't argue with the Jews. But Mr. Marshall himself has spent the last 20 years of his life in the virus of religious controversy. A few of his more impertinent interferences have been noted above. These are in a Jewish phrase, religious activities, with a decidedly political tinge. We will break with the Dearborn Independent article on Lewis Marshall here, which was originally published for the issue of November 26th, 1921. The article goes on to prove these last statements by reprinting a paper written by Lewis Marshall where the title had asked, Is ours a Christian government? As if the Jew could or should speak for the general population of the United States and its Christian founders. The result, of course, is typical Jewish treachery, which we may commit to these presentations once we have an opportunity to comment at length on each aspect of such treachery. The next significant American president to have been guided almost exclusively by Jews and the bankers is, of course, Franklin Roosevelt, the next dupe for the Jews, if he wasn't a Jew himself, and arguably it seems that he was at least one-eighth or one-sixteenth Jewish. Lewis Marshall died in 1929, six weeks before the stock market crashed. Samuel Untermeyer and Bernard Baruch were still prominent figures in New York Jewry, and Roosevelt was their governor. When Untermeyer announced the famous boycott of Germany by Jewry, he is said to have declared that this economic boycott is our means of self-defense. President Roosevelt has advocated its use in the National Recovery Administration. And that's found in a book called Silent Coup, The Removal of a President by Kolodny and Gatlin. There'll be a full citation in the paper, in the program notes. Roosevelt's so-called brain trust of Sir his brain trust circle of advisors included Jews such as Samuel Rosenman, his speechwriter Ben Cohen, who wrote much of the so-called New Deal legislation, the banker Bernard Baruch, Treasury, Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau, and the Supreme Court appointee Felix Frankfurter. As we established some years ago, in a presentation at the Mein Kampf project called the enemy within, subversion of America, we illustrated how these men in turn had recruited men of their own tribe, or at least men whom they could control who were of their own communist political persuasion into many of the lower posts in the bureaucracy. Felix Frankfurter was instrumental in recruiting the likes of accused by Alger Hiss, one of Frankfurter's protégés, for example. And for another example, Morgenthau had hired a Canadian Jew named Jacob Viner as an economist at the Treasury Department, and Jacob Viner in turn recruited another Jewish economist named Harry Dexter White, who is believed by some mainstream historians to have spied for the Soviet Union. 
but we do not believe that a circle of international Jews use or need spies in the traditional sense because they are all spies for their own objectives. There should be no doubt that all of the Jews in American government had their allegiance to the same world Jewry, which controlled the Soviet government as well as most other governments. So how could they be spies? After the Second World War, Harry Dexter White was a, the dominant figure at the Bretton Woods Conference, which created the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and related institutions. So the IMF was the creation of Jewish economists and the bankers, and servile American politicians from among the Goyim were happy to have it. But that was the same pattern when America entered the Second World War. The same pattern of Jewish patronage could probably be found at all levels of American government. To illustrate this, we will briefly discuss the rise of another Jew who became prominent in American politics, Henry Kissinger. But Kissinger owes his career, evidently, to yet another Jew named Fritz Kramer. So first we shall discuss him. Another Kramer protege was Alexander Haig. Kissinger, in turn, was the mentor to men such as George Bush Sr. and Timothy Geithner. Kramer's own son, Sven Kramer, held posts on the National Security Council under Johnson, Nixon, Ford, and Reagan. Fritz Kramer was born in Germany of Jewish parents. He's advertised as a Lutheran. He's born of Jewish parents. Even Wikipedia admits that. He is often considered a Lutheran, but that is not true, as he was actually just a converso Jew. Kramer is also often called a refugee from National Socialist Germany, but neither is that true. The son of a Jewish lawyer and state prosecutor in Germany, Kramer is said to have earned a doctorate degree at the University of Frankfurt in 1931, and to have moved on to Rome to work for the League of Nations, which was a Jewish operation in itself, in 1933. While in Rome, Kramer is said to have earned a second doctorate degree in political science in 1934. I can't prove it, but it's my opinion that Jews simply give Jews doctorate degrees. What do you want a degree in? Psychology? Okay, here it is. Go fuck the goyim. There you go. What do you want a degree in? Political science? Okay, here, go put the screws to the goyim. There you go. I think that's how the Jews work their doctoral degrees, but I can't prove it. The summaries of Kramer's biographies, as they are found online, are unclear. They state that he worked as a senior advisor for the League of Nations Legal Institute in Rome for the most of the 1930s. But then they say that Kramer escaped Nazi Germany to come to America in 1939. Drama is added to the account at Wikipedia, which is not our which is not our only source for this summary, where it says that coming to America, Kramer abandoned his wife and son. But it is not clear how Kramer dramatically escaped Nazi Germany from his long term employment in Rome. And since Kramer is said to have converted to Lutheranism during the Weimar era, it is not clear why he had to escape Nazi Germany. 
So we believe that the tale is certainly an embellishment to bolster Kramer's Jewish credentials. If this is not true, then perhaps one day we would find clarification. But even Henry Kissinger refutes this account, as we shall see. Kramer was supposedly drafted into the United States Army in 1943, which to us is as incredulous as his escaping the Nazis in Rome. Noting his long-term employment in the League of Nations, Kramer is said to have been discovered for his talents at an army camp in Louisiana by American Major General Alexander Bowling and promoted to Bowling's staff. He is also said to have fought a heroic role as a common soldier at the Battle of the Bulge, December 1944 to January 1945. He was allegedly captured by Germans and persuaded his captors to surrender. And after the war was miracul after the war, he was miraculously reunited with his long-lost wife and son. One source, an article in the Telegraph of London, says that Sven Kramer was the only boy in that small Rhineland village whose father survived the war. The small town evidently being Geilenkirchen, the same town Kramer was captured in, and evidently where he was, by chance, reunited miraculously with his family. So Kramer's biographies read like the worst of the phony Holocaust tales, so fantastic that they are absolutely unbelievable. Personally, I do not believe them. But one purpose here is not to present a full account of this history, or of modern history. Rather, it is to show sufficient details of history which demonstrate the fulfillment of the plans outlined in the protocols. While at Camp Claiborne, Kramer is said to have met another army inductee, who was also supposedly an escapee from Nazi Germany, named Heinz, or Henry Kissinger. Kissinger was hatched in Bavaria in 1923, and fled alleged Nazi persecution. I'm sorry, snakes aren't born, they're hatched. Arriving in New York via London in 1938, he, too, is said to have been drafted while attending the City College of New York, enrolled in accounting courses in 1943, go figure. Following assignment to Camp Claiborne, Fritz Kramer, according to Wikipedia and other sources, supposedly noted Kissinger's fluency in German and his intellect and arranged for him to be assigned to the military intelligence section of the division. Kissinger saw combat with the division and volunteered for hazardous intelligence duties, probably sitting at a desk in France, during the Battle of the Bulge. It's my guess. I'm just being cynical. The Telegraph of London quotes Henry Kissinger in regard to Fritz Kramer. Fritz Kramer was the greatest single influence of my formative years. We met in 1944 at Camp Claiborne, Louisiana. We were both privates in the 84th Division. We were both refugees from Germany. I by necessity, Kramer by choice. Now, a lot of the biographies I saw on Kramer, they left that out. 
That's how he supposedly fled Nazi Germany from Rome, by choice. Now, do we imagine that while Kramer was working this lucrative job at the League of Nations for the legal department of the League of Nations, the guy's a lawyer with a PhD, he's got to be making some lira. I think that's probably what they paid them in Italy. They didn't have euros yet. Do you think he really had his wife and kid in a town in Germany on the Rhineland? I mean, come on. That's just bullshit. This Kramer thing, it don't add up. I think that he probably met some poor German girl that had some other soldier's baby and probably said, if you be my wife and I take you back to America, I'll adopt your son. That's my gut feeling. She was probably raped and pregnant, and he just took her. That's my feeling. I can't prove that. Of course I can't prove that. But this story is just bullshit. The whole Fritz Kramer story. But Fritz Kramer brings us Henry Kissinger, supposedly. Kissinger says, We were both refugees from Germany. I by necessity, Kramer by choice. He was 36 years of age, I 19. He had two Ph.D. degrees. I had two years of night college in accounting. Kramer spoke to us in German uniform with such passion and erudition. He was wearing a German uniform in Louisiana, I guess, as a training exercise. There's a couple of statements that say he was doing that. Kramer spoke to us in German uniform and with such passion and erudition and on the moral and political stakes of the war that it was as if he were addressing each of us personally, Kissinger evidently referring to the other soldiers. For the first time in my life, and perhaps the only one, I wrote to a speaker how much he had moved me. A few days later, Kramer invited me to have dinner with him at the Enlisted Men's Club, at which he questioned me about my views and spoke to me about his values. Out of this encounter grew a relationship that changed my life. Otherwise, Henry Kissinger would probably be a store clerk in New York after he finished his accounting courses. I'm just kidding. The rest of the Kissinger story is nearly as fantastic as that of Kramer. And Wikipedia, yes, I'll quote Wikipedia, but this can be corroborated in other sources. And Wikipedia says that during the American advance into Germany, Kissinger, only a private, was put in charge of the administration of the city of Krefeld, owing to a lack of German speakers on the division's intelligence staff. Within eight days, he had, the rest were probably all Russian Jews, right? Within eight days, he had established a civilian administration. Kissinger was then reassigned to the counterintelligence corps with the rank of sergeant. He was given charge of a team in Hanover, assigned to tracking down Gestapo officers and other saboteurs, for which he was awarded the Bronze Star. In June 1945, Kissinger was made commandant of the Benzheim Metro CIC or Counterintelligence Corps Detachment, Bergstrasse District of Hesse, with responsibility for denazification of the district. Although he possessed absolute authority and powers of arrest, Kissinger took care, and of course this is just patronizing, Kissinger took care to avoid abuses against the local population by his command. 
Wikipedia's primary source for this account, or tale, is a biography of Kissinger written by another Jew named Walter Isaacson. We would rather believe that most of the Fritz Kramer story is fabricated, and that Kramer, a lawyer and League of Nations employee for as many as six years before the war, did not find his way to General Bolling's intelligence unit by chance, nor did he meet fellow Jew Henry Kissinger by chance. Rather, we believe that Kramer was placed into the position he had because he was a Jew and a Jew sought to oversee post-war Germany, while in turn Kissinger was selected for the position because he was also a Jew. According to the Telegraph biography, Kramer went on after the war to have a lucrative career as a chief civilian advisor to successive U.S. Army Chiefs of Staff and Secretaries of the Army. For much of the Cold War, he wielded an influence out of all proportion to the formal position that he held. His circle of admirers included Army Chiefs of Staff, such as Crichton Abrams, who was a Jew, Alexander Haig, who should have been, whom Kramer met as a young major, and other luminaries of the Cold War, such as Lieutenant General Vernon Walters, later ambassador to the UN and to West Germany, Lieutenant General Edward Rowney, later strategic, chief strategic arms negotiator, and Major General Edward Lansdale, a founding father of U.S. counterinsurgency and reputedly the model for Graham Greene's Quiet American. And of course, Edward Rowney probably worked with Kissinger later on since he was chief strategic arms negotiator and Kissinger's pet project in the Nixon administration was detente. Of Kissinger after the war, it is said that in 1946 Kissinger was reassigned to teach at the European Command Intelligence School at Camp King in Germany, continuing to serve in this role as a civilian employee following his separation from the army. Imagine that. Kissinger only had his brief wartime experience as the basis for his career launch. But he went on to obtain degrees in history and political science, all from Harvard. His graduate and postgraduate degrees were all from the same school, which is kind of odd in the academic world. Although he was an advisor and supporter of Nelson Rockefeller's failed presidential primary campaigns in 1960, 64, and 68, Nixon appointed him to the position of National Security Advisor after taking office in 68. So he served on the National Security Council for two administrations with the son of his Jewish mentor, Fritz Kramer because Sven Kramer sat on that same council for four administrations, from Johnson to Ford. According to current news sources, Henry Kissinger met with Donald Trump in mid-November, shortly after his election, and has already traveled to China to quote-unquote ease concerns about Trump transition something which United Press International and several other sources had reported just yesterday evening. So at the age of perhaps 93, he continues to serve the objectives of international Jewry. 
If we were to continue on his path, we could probably spend a long time researching and detailing this aspect of the fulfillment of the protocols, which is the Jewish advancement of Jews into positions of power in the government bureaucracy and ultimately as advisors and supposed technical experts to world rulers. The protocols have called them scientists, those technical experts. Advisors to presidents and politicians they were throughout the 20th century, precisely as the protocols had boasted at the end of the 19th century. For example, with only a supposed 3% of the American population being Jews, Jews had comprised at least 15% of the Roosevelt administration government employee appointees, I'm sorry, appointees, the people that Roosevelt appointed to office. And Jews have been more and more prominent in government, both appointed and elected with each passing administration. But here, as we have indicated, it is not our objective to write history. Rather, it is only our objective to give sufficient examples as to show the execution of the plan of the protocols in reality, and thereby to put the protocols into historical perspective. There should be no doubt that the protocols are real. And we will continue with one more short passage from protocol number two. The Goys are not guided by the practice of impartial historical observation, but by theoretical routine without any critical regard for its results. Therefore, we need give them no consideration. And this is perfectly true. The Jews got this one nailed. And with this, Adolf Hitler agreed. And we can see the truth of this as it is plainly evident in our own society. People think they know history. They know nothing of history. Hitler wrote the following in regard to this phenomenon in Volume 1, Book 4 of Mein Kampf, where he discusses the global capitalist propaganda circulating in Germany before the First World War. And he says, the chatter about the peaceful conquest of the world by commercial means was probably the most completely nonsensical stuff ever raised to the dignity of a guiding principle in the policy of a state. This nonsense became even more foolish when England was pointed out as a typical example to prove how the thing could be put into practice. Our doctrinal way of regarding history and our professorial ideas in that domain have done irreparable harm and offer a striking proof of how people learn history, quote-unquote learn, without understanding anything of it. As a matter of fact, England ought to have been looked upon as a convincing argument against the theory of the pacific or peaceful conquest of the world by commercial means. No nation prepared the way for its commercial conquests more brutally than England did by means of the sword, and no other nation has defended such conquests more ruthlessly.
It is not a characteristic quality of British statecraft that it knows how to use political power in order to gain economic advantages, and inversely, to turn economic conquests into political power. Now Hitler goes on to speak once more in reference to the First World War, and he says, What an astounding error it was to believe that England would not have the courage to give its own blood for the purposes of its own economic expansion. The fact that England did not possess a national army proved nothing, for it is not the actual military structure of the moment that matters, but rather the will and determination to use whatever military strength is available. England has always had the armament which she needed. She always fought with those weapons which were necessary for success. She sent mercenary troops to fight as long as mercenaries sufficed, but she never hesitated to draw heavily and deeply from the best blood of the whole nation when victory could only be obtained by such a sacrifice. And in every case the fighting spirit, dogged determination and use of brutal means in conducting military operations have always remained the same. So here we have seen Adolf Hitler once again corroborate the assertions made in the protocols in relation to the nature of the First World War, and also in relation to the general ignorance of history, even among those who were supposedly educated in history, simply because they learn history the wrong way. This is the same charge leveled by the protocols which the Jews boast of taking advantage. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and wait for the real Holocaust, because it's coming. Good night.